Last time, we dealt with a series of biblical misunderstandings surrounding the issue of eternal punishment. And tonight, we're going to deal with some of the sticky philosophical issues related to hell. So I want to warn you in advance that we're going to look at a lot of writings by great Christian philosophers. And the reason for this is simple. The deep philosophical questions related to eternal judgment are not new. And the biblical and philosophical responses to these questions aren't new either. And so, one of the advantages of tonight's teaching is that I've accumulated and condensed many of the teachings of great philosophers into less than an hour of teaching. And it condenses hundreds of hours of reading these biblical thinkers into just a few pages of notes. So be prepared for us to do some reading in this session, much more than usual actually, but it has, uh, you have it there. And tonight we're going to start by looking at the profound implications of having the freedom to make moral choices. Here's your first implication. Number one, here's your blanks. Even with an all-good and all-powerful God, human freedom, if it's real, creates the possibility for evil. Look what you just wrote. Even with an all-good and all-powerful God, human freedom, if it's real, creates the possibility for evil. In Thursology sessions 63 to 73, we did an extensive series on the problem of evil. And in Numbers 64 and 65, we discuss some age-old questions. Was God the cause of evil? And how, would, uh, how could a God who is all good and all powerful allow evil? And we unpack these issues from the perspective of what the theological tradition that says that God is not the cause of evil believe. Let me say that again. This was the perspective we took. It's often called the Arminian approach. And it was what the theological traditions say that, that uh, say God is not the cause of evil. Believe. Here's what they believe. God allowed, here's your blank, God allowed for the possibility of evil by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices and giving them the ability to rebel against his will. If you want to look at the details of that, because there is a strain of Orthodox Christianity that believes God did, in fact, originate and cause all things, including evil. But that's not the perspective that I taught from in 64 and 65. And so notice what you just wrote in. God allowed for the possibility of evil by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices and giving them the ability to rebel against his will. In these sessions, we grappled with how a sovereign God could be, uh, could be refused. How can that be? In other words, if God is has absolute control, how could someone refuse to do what he commands? And C.S. Lewis dealt with this eloquently in Mere Christianity. Look with me at what he said about the tension between God's sovereignty and, in this part of his writing, Satan's rebellion. Here's the Here's C.S. Lewis. Christians believe that an evil power has made himself the prince of this world, and that raises problems. In this state of affairs, in accordance with God, is this state of affairs in accordance with God's will or not? If it is, he is a strange God, you will say, and if not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? But anyone, this is, what an insight, but anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to the children, I'm not going to make you tidy up your room every night. You've got to learn how to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying on the floor. On the one hand, this is against her will. But on the other, it is her will that has left the children free to be untidy. And it is the same way in the universe. Now think about this. God created humanity to be like him, to always choose the right, to always choose the good, to always choose self-giving love like him. But because he also gave us real freedom, 
the ability to choose his way or our way, this meant that there was a real possibility that at some point humanity could choose evil. And without this possibility, it wouldn't have been true freedom. It would have been a sham, and God would have become the great deceiver, pretending that robots who were under his complete control were freely choosing to love and obey him. But in the biblical sense, love can never be coerced. It can never be forced. Love must always be freely given as a choice in the face of having the ability to choose not to love. And thus, by Adam and Eve's choice in the garden, and by our ongoing affirmation of their choice to want to be our own God, the perfect world that God created, the unlimited happiness that God planned for us, the infinite joy of being in perfect relationship with him forever, that perfect plan was subverted. And this choice turned the world into what it is today. Implication. Remember the implications of God giving freedom to humans. Implication number two. Here's your blank. The free selves that God created, the free selves that God created, used their freedom to reject him and tried to become their own master. This was the essence of the fall. This is what the serpent's temptation was, that they could be in control, that they could create their own way, their own history by casting God aside. Lewis explains this. Notice it's in your notes here. The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like God, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, could be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness, look at this, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. So, using their freedom, humans chose to ruin perfection and set the world on the pathway to create the fallen world that we live in today. Implication number three. Implication number three. This one is, is really uh, an anchor, and so I'll write it in with you as we write it in together. Implication number three. The only true joy, here's your blanks, the only true joy for beings who were created in God's image is to freely choose, choose, to surrender to his will. Look at that. Number three, the only true joy for beings who were created in God's image is to freely choose to surrender to his will. One of the most persistent myths of human history is the false belief that we can find happiness, fulfillment, and joy in our own way, making our own plan apart from surrendering to God's perfect plan and that fully lives into the greatness that he made us for. The fact is, true joy is unattainable apart from freely surrendering to God's will. Look at Lewis's brilliant understanding of this truth. Here's your paragraph. Look, God created beings with free will. That means creatures that can go either wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature that was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata of creatures that worked like machines, would not be worth creating. The happiness, profound, look at this, the happiness that God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. And now watch as he exposes how pursuing happiness 
in our own way, is what has caused all of the calamities and suffering of the fallen world. Look at the next paragraph. Out of the hopeless attempt to invent happiness apart from God has come nearly all that we call human history. Poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of humanity trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. And now comes one of the most powerful and profound insights in Christian history about the hopeless attempt to create happiness apart from God. Look at it with me. The reason why it can never succeed is this. Remember the last statement he said, they've been trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us like someone invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's no good asking God to make us happy in our own way, without bothering about following him. God cannot, isn't that amazing? God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. What an insight. And this gives us two key concepts. Again, in this implication number three, it's so important. It's such a foundation for understanding all of the philosophical issues and problems related to hell. So here it is, key, uh, key concept number one. God designed humans to run on himself. I love how Lewis says it. What an incredible insight. God designed humans to run on himself in a freely chosen love relationship. Love relationship with him. Got it? God designed humans to run on himself in a freely chosen love relationship with him. And key concept number two, thus it is impossible. Remember, God cannot. <laughs> it is impossible because of the way he's constrained himself, by the way he has created us. Thus, it is impossible, even for God, to give us a happiness apart from himself. Himself. There is no such thing. As Lewis said, it is not there. It doesn't exist. It cannot happen. So then, why can humans not have their own way and have absolute joy and self-fulfillment? Because such a state of being does not exist. My way and true joy and happiness does not exist. Only flashes, lies, uh, 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 images that we talk into that that's real joy. But compared to the great full joy that God has built us for, created us for, made us for, it does not exist in our own godness, if you will. So, with these foundations, let's deal with several major complaints about the doctrine of hell. Complaints by which some people question the character of God. Major complaint number one, here you go, here's your blank. The doctrine is detestable. The doctrine is detestable. C.S. Lewis describes this issue insightfully in his book, the problem of pain. Look at this paragraph. The doctrine of hell is one of the chief grounds on which Christianity is attacked as barbarous and the goodness of God is impugned. We are told that it is a detestable doctrine. And you're ready for C.S. Lewis? He just, he just accepts it. And indeed, I too detest it from the bottom of my heart. Lewis goes on. Look at the next paragraph. There is no doctrine that I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason, which he expands on tremendously in both Mere Christianity and the Problem of Pain. I would read those uh, if you have not. I am not going to try to prove the doctrine tolerable, 
Let us make no mistake. It is not tolerable. So there's no reason to think that to have an orthodox biblical view, you have to come to grips with all of the answers related to the existence of hell. In fact, stop trying to come to grips with all of the issues. Don't think that you have to become comfortable with the disturbing realities that it brings up. Aversion, ready? Aversion is the normal response to the biblical teaching about hell. But just because it's detestable doesn't mean that it can somehow be wished away. And so, in response to this complaint, we're left with an unsettled tension. You ready? Here it is. Hell is real. And everything about it, even the fact that it exists, is horrible. It's true. But it is still there. Major complaint number two. The doctrine is unfair. As we begin to deal with this complaint, let's quickly review two of the eternity truths from our last session in Thursology 100. Eternity truth number one, write it in, God desires for everyone to have eternal life. Look here from 2 Peter chapter 3, this incredible verse 4, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And eternity number two, truth number two from last time. God has provided, so God desires for everyone to have eternal life and ready. God has provided the way for everyone to have eternal life. This from John 12, for example. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That incredible statement of prevenient grace of Christ through the Spirit drawing every human, even before we come to accept him, drawing us, drawing us, drawing us. That's what the cross did. So this was Christ announcing that when he was lifted up on the cross, he would woo and draw every person. Now, how he does this, we don't fully understand and won't until we hear him teach it to us, probably. But that he draws everyone to himself through his shed blood is as explicit as anything that's taught in Scripture. God desires for everyone to have eternal life, and God has provided the way for everyone to have eternal life. And yet, we also know that the way is narrow and that leads to eternal life. And the way that leads to destruction is wide, and many will choose that way. So, how do we resolve this tension? In the future, I'll deal extensively with this issue in a series about the biblical theology of salvation. But for now, I'll give us just one strand of the myriad of truths that the scripture teaches about this. I'll give it as a key concept. Here's your blank, write it in. Not all people will be saved, but more people will seek God and respond to him than we know of in our finite understanding. Not all people will be saved, but more people will seek God and respond to him than we know in our finite understanding. I've given a snapshot of that in the dreams, the thousands of Muslims in countries where you cannot preach, the, the Bible's illegal and they, you're killed for preaching the gospel and so forth, and yet Jesus is appearing and they are coming to Christ and some of them are even going to other nations, getting trained and becoming pastors and missionaries and going back to those places. Completely inconceivable almost from our perspective of, wait a second, nobody went and told them that amazing reality that, that Christ is saving in places that we don't know about and that we don't have control of. See, God's saving grace and saving power are just two examples of how he's able to do more abundantly more than we ask or think. For example, we know that both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they both say everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. So in those nations where they may not have ever heard the actual gospel, but Perhaps in a dream even, like with Abimelech, God is coming with the truth. 
and they are responding and even starting communities of faith. It's absolutely remarkable. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and the Lord will be saved. A profound, pervasive biblical doctrine. Now, some say that the only people God can ever save are those who have heard the gospel of Christ and responded to that knowledge. But this brings up an immediate question. How did God save anyone in the Old Testament? How did God save Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Deborah, Rahab, David, Isaiah, Josiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel, and all of the rest of the saved in the Old Testament? And the answer is, Jesus has saved humans in every age, every culture, every place, and every generation. And he's saved people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. C.S. Lewis points this out in Mere Christianity, and here he's echoing classical Christian orthodoxy that comes out of understanding that God was able to save people before Christ came because Christ was always saving even before he had the cross and the resurrection. Notice from Lewis, here is another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangements are for the other people. We do not know, excuse me, we do know that no one can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those that know him can be saved through him. But in the meantime, if you are worried about the people outside, the most unreasonable thing you can do is to remain outside yourself. What a great insight. If you're concerned about those who have never heard, Jesus has ways of saving them that we do not comprehend or know. But the worst thing would be is to use some excuse, theological excuse about your concern for those who never hear when you have heard yourself to still remain outside because now we're accountable for knowing the gospel of Jesus. So in response to the complaint that the doctrine of hell is unfair, here's what we know for sure. Ready? Write it in. What we know for sure, Jesus is the perfect Savior, the perfect judge, and he's perfectly impartial. Jesus is the perfect Savior, the perfect judge, and he's perfectly impartial. Again, back to Thursology number 63, where I dealt uh, extensively with that, if you, would, if you would like to look back. And now major complaint number three. Here's your blanks. Endless torture is out of proportion to the crimes committed even by the rebellious. Endless torture is out of proportion. A big complaint. Endless torture is out of proportion to the crimes committed even by the rebellious. So here we must learn, lean heavily on what we've learned from Scripture in the last two weeks. That the essence of hell is eternal separation from God. You see, it's impossible to understand the biblical teachings on eternal punishment without this foundational precept. Without this, you can end up with, the, uh, with what has been centuries of objectification, if you will, of hell, like you see in Dante's Inferno. You end up with the non-biblical understanding of hell as primarily a type of physical pain in a would-be eternal super oven. That, that's where you, where you end up in your mind of these pictures of hell. Primarily, some type of ongoing, excruciating physical pain in a horribly hot, flamey place. And, and when this happens, you go down the track of thinking of hell as a torture chamber with stocks and racks and fiery consumption of the lost person's body forever. But this is completely misses the fact that, think about this, only the redeemed will have a body in eternity. Only the redeemed will have a body in eternity. Only those who love and follow the Savior will have resurrected bodies. Now pay attention. The lost won't have bodies. Their physical bodies will have rotted away into dust, never to be renewed. And then, while the redeemed will live in the inconceivable joy of having the resurrected 
perfectly integrated body, mind, soul, spirit in eternity because that's what an integrated human is. A perfect body, mind, soul, spirit integrated combination throughout eternity. Notice, the lost will tragically be disembodied spirits. Literally, they will only have a hint of the vestiges of being human. Why? Because real humans, whole humans, aren't only spirits. The real human now is Jesus, and he has a resurrected human body. You see, they will, they, um, uh, the, the, the physical bodies will have rotted away, and so what happens is, literally, they will only have a hint of the vestiges of being human because the body will be gone. Real humans, real humans, whole humans have bodies. Angels and demons are spirit-only beings. But a person can't be truly human without the integrated whole renewed in the perfect image of Christ restored exactly to what Adam and Eve's eternal bodies were before they ruined them in the Great Rebellion. And this leads us to the ancient and orthodox understanding of hell as being, ready, being precisely a remnant of a human, an isolated, disembodied spirit being who has rejected God's universal offering of returning to him through grace. These people will have intentionally shunned the eternal perfection that humans were created for. They will have knowingly fled from a relationship with their creator, without which there is only despair and heartache. In classical, historic, biblical theology, this is hell. There can be no greater human suffering than this separation. All of the biblical attempts to describe how horrible this separation will be are mere flea bites. Listen, compared to the actual eternal self-imposed freely chosen separation from the only source of reality, every attempt to describe the horror of separation from God is an understatement, in fact. Words can't really do it. And this is because the only source of being truly human, truly human, of being who we were created to be. Every, the only source is found alone in him. And thus, being eternally, eternally separated from God is and is precisely hell. So, we end this section with a correction of the wrong assumptions of complaint number three. Ready? I'm going to read this twice. It's really long, but this thought, I think, will be helpful. Ready? Here's your blanks. Those who think of hell as an endless torture chamber with unspeakable horrors that were invented to, that God invented to inflict pain and suffering on rebellious humans have completely misunderstood eternal punishment because the real eternal punishment will be the self-imposed banishment from the very presence of the one who is life and hope and joy and happiness. Let's go through that and read it again now. Those who think of hell as an endless torture chamber with unspeakable horrors that God invented to inflict pain and suffering on rebellious humans have completely misunderstood eternal punishment because the real eternal punishment will be the self-imposed banishment from the very presence of the one who is life and hope and joy and happiness. And this brings us to a perennial question, almost the perennial question about eternal judgment. Ready? Here's your blanks. How can you reconcile God's love and the existence of hell? How can you reconcile God's love and the existence of hell? In this final section, we'll deal with this question with a series of key concepts. Key concept number one, here we go. No one in hell will be a victim. 
And all separation from God happens as a result of intentional choice made by beings who God loves so much that he died for them. Look what we just wrote down. No one in hell will be a victim, and all separation from God happens as a result of intentional choice made by beings who God loves so much that he died for them. Key concept number two. Hell is not God's choice. It's a human choice. Remember? He wishes that all will come to repentance. If I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all humans to myself. Ready? Hell is not God's choice. It's a human choice, despite all that God has done to prevent it. Here's where we must understand that. Because we were made in the image of God, made to share his character, to share his self-sacrifice and his other orientation, the only heaven that can possibly exist is a heaven where self-giving love is at the core of reality. I covered this extensively in Thursology number 96 when we talked about how surprise, the big surprise that if you love your own ways here, you would hate being in heaven. Um, number 96, if you'd like to go back over that. But think about that. No heaven can exist for those who demand their way. See, in contrast, when beings that were created in God's image fail to surrender their will to him and demand their autonomy, their self-determination, and demand to live with themselves at the center of their lives, then they're beginning to establish in themselves the very foundation of what will be for them hell if they don't choose to alter this trajectory. Let me give you to, to you as C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. Ready? Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. And he has spent, of course, a huge amount of time on the truth of that. Notice, now there are good, a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. And look at how author Timothy Keller describes this biblical concept. Look at this from his book, The Reason for God. Even in this life, we can find, even in this life, we can find the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption lead to bitterness, envy, anxiety, <coughs> and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually, our life extends on into eternity? Hell then, listen to the insight, hell then is the trajectory of a soul living in a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell then is the trajectory of a soul living in a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. And now listen again to C.S. Lewis now from The Problem of Pain. Brilliant insight. Look at this. Our Lord spoke of hell as a sentence in the law court sense. But he also said that the judgment consists in the very fact that humans prefer darkness to light. Indeed, in the long run, these two things mean the same thing. Brilliant insight. Look at this. In other words... It is accurate to think of the bad man's punishment not as a sentence imposed on him, but as the mere fact of being what he is. The characteristic of lost souls is their rejection of everything that is not simply themselves. 
And finally, in a sentence, Timothy Keller brings all of these concepts together, again, from The Reason for God, his amazing book. Ready? Here it is. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. But now, an obvious question comes up. Why would anyone be so bent on having their own way that they would refuse the joy of becoming exactly who they were made to be and accept eternal separation from their perfect, loving creator? How how could anyone be so bent on their own way that they're willing to that? And we'll answer this with key concept number three. Ready? Here's your blank. Saving faith. Saving faith isn't just about accepting truth. It's also about surrendering our will. Saving faith is both accepting the truth and surrendering our will. That we confess that Jesus is Lord, Lord of me. I'm not Lord. I'm the servant. Surrendering our will. Notice this biblical concept removes a common complaint by atheists and agnostics. Many of them contend that the reason they don't acknowledge God is because he hasn't provided sufficient evidence to believe in him. In other words, from their perspective, if they end up in hell, it will be because they didn't have enough information. But this is actually a scam. The choice to accept God as God doesn't take convincing information. Doesn't, excuse me, doesn't just take convincing information. It also requires acknowledging that we're rebels, and it requires laying down our claims to call our own shots, lay down our right to self-determination. And because of this, humans fight tooth and nail to reject the joy that God offers because, guess what? We don't want joy on God's terms. We don't like those terms. Lewis says it this way in The Problem of Pain. Look at, look at the text here. When humans offer back their will in delighted obedience to their creator, there most undoubtedly is heaven. Listen to that beautiful biblical definition, explanation of heaven. Look at this. When humans offer back their will in delighted obedience to their creator, there most undoubtedly is heaven. The problem in this fallen world is how to recover this self-surrender because we are not merely imperfect beings who must be improved. Listen, rather, we are rebels who must lay down our arms and to render back to God the will that we have so long claimed for our own is a grievous pain. To surrender a self-will inflamed with years of usurpation, is a kind of death. And so, the idea that people will be in hell simply because God didn't give them enough evidence to believe in him tries to bypass the real reason they won't believe. It's an attempt to get around the fact that everyone has enough information to know that they aren't God, and that God is God, and that they must lay down their claim to be God. But many, when given this choice, will choose hell. And this leads to key concept number four. Here's your blanks. It's a myth to believe that after death, when the prospect of being separated eternally from God becomes clear. Look how that starts again. It's a myth to believe That after death, when the prospect of becoming separated eternally from God becomes clear, humans will want to change their mind and surrender to the truth. That's a myth. This is a commonly held belief by many who don't understand what Scripture teaches about eternal punishment. Timothy Keller summarizes it insightfully this way. Look at the paragraph. Modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. Listen to this description and see if this is not a great description of what modern thinkers think, right? God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for eternity. As the poor soul falls through space, they cry out for mercy. But God says, too late. You had your chance. Now you must suffer. 
This caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom, or good things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. Listen to this. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell. He goes on to clarify what this looks like. This is great. Look at this. The people in hell are miserable, but here's why. We see them raging like unchecked flames in their pride, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. And this soul disintegration continues forever as they eternally blame everyone but themselves. This is why it is a travesty to picture God casting people, uh, people into a pit who are crying, I'm sorry, please let me out. People in hell would rather have their freedom as they define it than salvation. Their delusion is that if they glorified God, they would somehow lose their power and freedom. But in a supreme and tragic irony, their choice has ruined their potential for greatness. And this is Timothy Keller now quoting from Lewis. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. I will have my way eternally is hell. Key concept number five. Here's your blank. God paid the ultimate price for our restoration, but he will not coerce or force anyone into a compulsory heaven. God paid the ultimate price for our restoration, but he will not coerce or force anyone into a compulsory heaven. Remember what we established earlier. Why can humans not have their own way and also have absolute joy and fulfillment? Because God made us to run on himself. And so only in surrendering to him can we experience true, deep, long-lasting joy. And look how Lewis gives clarity on how God, even in his sovereignty, won't force someone to love and follow him. Look at Lewis's insight. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make them surrender but them, and they may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it, pay attention, this is so brilliant, without their will or with it, if I say without their will, I immediately perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, my reason replies, what if they will not give in? The problem is not that of a God who consigns some of his creatures to final ruin. That is the problem for Islam. But Christianity always true to the complexity of the real, presents a God so full of mercy that he becomes human and dies by torture to avert that final ruin from his creatures, and who yet, where that heroic remedy fails, seems unwilling or even unable to arrest that ruin by a mere act of power. That is so deep and so compact you may want to go back after this and read that multiple times, but it is so incredibly, deeply, biblically profound. Ready? And now Lewis lays out the age-old and excruciating mystery of the biblical tension between, on the one hand, God's grace, and on the other hand, God's truth. And of course, neither of those exist apart from each other, but it is...
we think of the tension. Ready? God's mercy and his justice. Ready? As, a, as I glibly said a moment ago, I would pay any price to remove the doctrine of hell. This is so brilliant. Look at this. I said glibly a moment ago that I would pay any price to remove the doctrine of hell. I lied. I could not pay one thousandth part of the price that God has already paid to remove the fact of hell. And here is the real problem. So much mercy, and yet there is still hell. Key concept number six. Number six. In one very real sense, those who ultimately choose rebellion win their battle against God. And in their self-proclaimed eternal victory of having their own way, they lose all. Look with this again at me, with me. In one very real sense, those who ultimately choose rebellion win their battle against God, and in their self-proclaimed eternal victory of having their own way, they lose all. This point is made by brilliantly by Lewis in The Problem of Pain. Look at this. Some object that the ultimate loss of even a single soul means the defeat of God's omnipotence. And I love his just brutal honesty. And so it does. In creating beings with free will, God, from the outset, submitted to the possibility of such defeat. But what you call defeat, I call miracle. For to make things which are not itself, notice the capital itself, God, for, for to make things which are not itself and thus to become capable of being resisted by its own handiwork, I believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. In other words, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that they may, they, the, the lost may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion of an envious man wishes to be happy. It just... A uh, little glitch. Let me just restart there. I believe the damned are in one sense successful. Rebels to the end. In other words, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that they, uh, uh, the lost may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion that an envious man wishes to be happy. But they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach heaven. Tragically, they enjoy, notice in quotes, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done exactly that on Calvary. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. And so, think with me. What many people ask, why can't God just leave me alone to be what I want to be and do what I want to do? Once again, Lewis nails this. In the end, there will only be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And thus, when all is said and done, being left alone by God is exactly, precisely, absolutely hell. Hell is God saying to a human, thy will 
will be done. So as we close tonight, let me ask you a question. Which kind of person, I've put this in your notes for us all to ponder, which kind of person are you becoming? Are you becoming the person who says to God, thy will be done? Or are you becoming the person to whom God will say, for all of his price, for all of the love, for all of the mercy and his shed blood, nonetheless, thy will be done. For it is in the answering of this question that ultimately the problem of hell is resolved because hell is a choice of our will. Let's pray. Well, Lord, tonight we have dealt with an incredibly difficult problem. The idea that people who were made perfect originally, and for perfection, and for eternity, and for eternal joy beyond anything we can imagine, that some of us, in order to keep our own autonomy, to have our own way, would choose hell. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will use this time of listening to these amazing, insightful thinkers who have who have scoured the scripture and shown so deeply how to answer so many of these complaints against this issue. Lord, that as we have done that, that you will now set each of us on answering that question. Am I becoming the kind of person to whom, who says, Lord, your will be done? Or am I becoming the kind of person to whom ultimately the Lord will have to say, I am so sorry, but yes, I'll leave you alone. Your will be done. Lord, may your Holy Spirit transform us so that we are becoming just like you. And thank you for the perfect joy that is restored when we do that. Even in this age, and we look forward to that amazing age in the future where we will continuously forever say, you are God. And in that self determined, self-free decision will find ultimate, eternal joy. We love you, Lord. Amen.